Welcome to Gold with Jeanette Schneider, nuggets of inspiration for a bigger, badder, more purposeful life. Each week we share wisdom, insights, and gold from those living their very best lives. After 23 years in finance and a fancy SVP title, I retired at the age of 41 to advocate for women and girls in life, love, the boardroom, and the marketplace. Now the CEO of my own media company, my goal is to change the world for my daughter and her friends. My first book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future, dropped this fall and is based on what women wish they would have known when they were girls. This is purposeful content, big conversations, and a safe place for us to share our gold and our dreams for the future. We record every week from the sound studio at The Space LV. Today I am joined by Gina Bennett, a long-standing member of the CIA Senior Analytics Service, currently on assignment as the Senior Counterterrorism Advisor in the Directorate of Strategic Operational Planning in the National Counterterrorism Center. She is a seasoned counterterrorism specialist who authorized the earliest warnings of some of today's terrorism trends, including the 1993 report that warned of the growing danger of Osama bin Laden and the extremist movement he was fomenting. We talk about her shift into national security and what I'm calling her sixth sense when it comes to the insightfulness of her work over decades. Gina was featured in the 2015 Showtime documentary Spy Masters, the HBO documentary Manhunt, and in the PBS documentary Makers, Women Who Make America, in their episode on women in war for her role as a trailblazing woman in the counterterrorism field. She has been featured in the cover story of Newsweek's issue on women in the CIA in 2016, and in a previous Newsweek article for her role as a female pioneer in the targeting. She has been featured in the cover story of Newsweek's issue on women in CIA in 2016, and in a previous Newsweek article for her role as a female pioneer in the targeting. She's also been featured in a variety of media for her book, National Security Mom. Gina teaches ethics and intelligence as an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University in the Security Studies program of the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and at the George Washington University in the International Policy and Practice program at the Elliott School of International Affairs. She is also a founding board member of Girls Security, an educational program to familiarize elementary to high school girls in national and international security issues. She is a single mom of five children. What I love about Gina is that she takes the scare out of national security and approaches it as a woman and mother. She talks resiliency, how women experience personal security differently from men, and the importance of including girls in our conversations about security. Let's dig in. I am so excited to have with me today Gina Bennett. She's an analyst with the CIA and one of the coolest women I have met. Um, thank you for joining me today. I'm so delighted that you're you're here with me. Well, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So I met Gina in Sun Valley. We were there doing um, conversations with exceptional women. And it was, Gina just has a beautiful way of looking at the world, which I love because when we think of national security, we think of it from the perspective of the news that we watch or through a political lens. And when you talk to Gina, Gina looks at it from a much more human perspective. And she has a book out called National Security Mom. And I was just joking with her before we got started. Um, one of the nice that we were in the house, I had to act out in charades. My thing was national security mom. I don't know why. I think it's because like I know that you've been trained to like like watch body language, and I was like, this feels like really <laughs> stressful. Um, but it was 
It was just wonderful to get to know you, and I ordered your book, and I read your book, and I've been reading the papers that you've been putting out, the op-eds. And I, I want to start by asking you, how did you decide to get into national security? What was the what was the, the thing that led you there? Mm. I did not decide. It found me, I think, as happens with so many people, uh, happenstance and luck and things completely out of your control if you surrender to them. Yes. Lead you down a path. So I um, I started off, about, I was 21. I had just graduated, you know, my undergraduate degree at University of Virginia. And I, I did not want to return home. For some reason, I thought that was not a good idea. So with one week, one week after graduating, I took the first job that I could get, um, up in Washington, D.C., and I want, I knew I wanted to be in foreign affairs in some way, but I wasn't mm-hmm. really sure how, and I had this job as a clerk typist at the Department of State, so I, was, I literally had to alphabetize as quickly as possible and type fast in order to pass the test to get my job, and within a few weeks of being in there, my father had always told me, just get your foot in the door somewhere and work hard and people will see your work ethic. So I followed his advice, and the woman who was in charge of that office told me that I really ought to think of a career in intelligence, which is not something that I had necessarily considered before, but she was um, pretty adamant, and if it had not been for her seeing my work ethic and being willing to encourage me, I'm not sure I would have done it, but I immediately took a job doing, um, really it was, a, it was one of those 24-hour watch office kind of things like you see on TV. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was doing terrorism. I was watching terrorist incidents all over the world and monitoring for that and, you know, trying to help figure out terrorist attacks and things like that. And, you know, like I said, I was 21 and something about it just really grabbed me and said, hey, this is, this is a mission. This is something bigger than you trying to prevent terrorist attacks. That's, that's something that you could do and never really get tired of doing that, never stop being challenged by it, never being, you know, never stop being motivated to do it better. So it just got a hold of me and I haven't been able to leave it after 30 years. And you, I mean, you had a, a long career and you were one of the first women, the first people who wrote about the concerns um, surrounding Osama bin Laden and his threat to the United States. I read a couple of pieces where you were considered genius, brilliant, prescient, and the way <laughs> that you look at, um, at at security. And I'm just curious, I mean, it seems like it became almost like a sixth sense for you. And in reading some of the things that you've written about the way we look at it from a more human perspective, do you think that that gave you kind of a leg up in that field? Well, not at first. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, people only looked at my analysis from, you know, the late 80s and the early 1990s, 10, 15, almost 20 years later and said, wow, that was really insightful Mm. and prophetic because hindsight had proven what I was saying back then um, correct. And, and and it was, you know, when I was first talking about this new threat emerging in the terrorist picture, you know, we were still, we were still at the end of the Cold War. The Soviet Union still existed. There was no reason to believe Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the things that came afterward. No one, none of that was even in existence yet. So when I first started warning that I thought something different was happening, people just, you know, they, they were, I was young, and of course they had every right to say, well, that's 
that's kind of crazy. And they were very dismissive. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't hold a grudge about that. I would have probably dismissed me too, but, um, you know, it just, it taught me a lot. And I now, even now I embrace newer analysts and, and alternative thinking all the more so because that's really what I was at the time, an alternative voice. And then after 10 years or so, the world sort of caught up to what I was seeing. And, you know, we ended up with the 1998 Africa embassy bombings by Al Qaeda and then eventually 9-11. So I, I think at first, just having this sense of anomalies um, that maybe when you were saying sixth sense, I think for me, I have a pretty good sense of something that is out of place. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, and I was seeing things happening as the Soviet troops withdrew from Afghanistan and back in 1989. And I thought, this isn't normal. This isn't what we usually see. And, you know, between that and curiosity and just this driving passion to dig even deeper and deeper and deeper, that's how I got started in analyzing the what was the emergence of al-Qaeda and eventually the whole global jihadist movement. So I think, um, you know, it's a little bit of really watching human behavior and noticing when things are different and then just not wanting, and then just tenacious, I don't give up. Yeah. Well, and I I read an op-ed that you did, um, that you wrote recently about the few days after 9-11 and Mm. barely having any sleep and you're at your son's baseball game trying to bring some sense of normalcy to your life. Will you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was pregnant with my fourth child when 9-11 occurred. Um, so and nobody knew at the time that I was pregnant because it was early on in my pregnancy. So I was trying to hide the fact that I needed to get sick all the time. But you know, those, are, those were rough days and weeks and really years because for those of us trying to prevent Al-Qaeda from conducting further attacks, 9-11 was really a good two, almost three years for us. To, to run down every single thing that was going on with that group. But, um, yeah, I think it was a Saturday morning after 9-11. 9-11 was a Tuesday. And I really hadn't slept much or showered or changed. I think I was in her horrendous sweatpants and sweatshirt, and I was at the baseball game watching my son play. Um, and it really struck me, you know, they did the national anthem and the – coaches asked for a moment of silence for what had happened on 9-11 and everybody of course respectfully had a moment of silence and then when that was over the boys just like they just ran to the dugouts with abandon and they got all their gear on and they went out to go be spotted by scouts and make their start their career as big leaguers you know that's their 10 year old boys that's what they're thinking and it was just awesome to see all they cared about was baseball and each other and just the game. And I realized that that is exactly what we seek to protect. And that's what is going to continue no matter what happens. And that resilience and resolve to just remain Americans with all our, our folly and, <laughs> and all our admirable traits all wound up into one thing. And, it really helped me see the bigger picture. Like this isn't just about stopping attacks and finding terrorists and even, you know, preventing terrorism. It's also about preserving 
our ability to do and be what we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've heard you speak mm-hmm. on resilience um, when you were talking in Sun Valley and sharing um, your own thoughts of of kind of taking the fear away from the conversation mm-hmm. of terror. And I know that sounds crazy to most people, right? Because we operate from a fear-based mindset and you're so close to it and you're able to actually see it in kind of almost compartments and understand it from mm-hmm. different life lessons. Like I even read you, you know, writing about um, the Corday Ballet. Like it's important not to be noticed in the Corday Ballet and that's you have a very yeah. small area in which to perform your moves because you really want the soloist to shine and how you can take moments of life and kind of look at what you do and see on a daily basis and, and make those kind of um, correlations or even the, the juxtaposition, right, of life because I think most mm-hmm. Americans – when we look at the word terror or national security, it instills fear. And I, mm. I love that we have someone who's so close to it who is saying we still want to preserve our resiliency. And I know you personally have done a lot to try to help people understand, especially around um, women and girls and their own understanding of mm-hmm. personal security. And I would love for you to share what your thoughts are on the way we approach security from not just a national perspective, but also from a human gendered mm-hmm. perspective. Right. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Let me <laughs> start with just thinking about national security a little bit differently than what we have been, at least for the past 20 years or so in some ways I feel like it's it's going back to how we thought of national security during the Cold War in a way but um, getting ahead of myself uh, just I think that there's a there's a real difference between safety and security and I think understanding that distinction and I know I'm making it a little bit more artificial than it is but I think it's worth teasing it out just a little you know, your personal safety is obviously very important to everybody. I mean, my personal safety is important to me. As a mother, the safety sure. of my children is extremely important. Um, any parent would say that about their child. Uh, and, you know, th- that's that's great. That makes sense. Of course, we should be doing everything we can to safeguard our personal integrity, protect ourselves from physical attack. On the other hand, we also know that if we're going to live this life to the fullest, we're not going to be able to protect ourselves from being attacked all the time. There are going to be times, whether we're in our car and somebody bumps into us or whether we're you know, out and about in a crowd and somebody knocks us over or whether or not someone physically tries to hurt us you know, deliberately in, in a criminal sense. Um, same way with our kids. We want to protect them from being hurt. We want to stand underneath the monkey bars and not let them fall and break their arms. We, you know, we don't want them to be bullied. We want them to be protected in, when they're driving and so forth and so on. But if we protect ourselves and them from all of that and don't let them ever get hurt, then they are going to be living a very miserable and dull life because really embracing life and experiencing life has enormous number of risks to it and you can't guarantee your personal safety. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's one way of looking at it in a national sense, you know, at the national level, it would be nice to preserve our borders and the territorial integrity of the United States of America that we should do that. It would be great if we could protect every building, every piece of our infrastructure, 
all of our cities, all of our people, our waterways, etc. Yes, we should strive to do that. But it, we're in this world, you know, yes. this world. We're not sitting in space somewhere isolated from a world of, of threats and a world of uncertainty, whether it's climate change, cyberspace, uh, a state actor or terrorists. You know, we're in the mix. So can't guarantee 100 percent safety. Security, on the other hand, and, you know, going back to the personal side, when you're attacked, when you're bullied, um, when you've been knocked over, um, when you've been screamed at by some road rage person you know, on the beltway, it's then up to you how you recover and move forward from that. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have a very difficult time with that, and it's understandable. It's traumatic experience. When you can finally get to a place of saying, okay, I'm no longer going to let that fear define who I am or influence how I behave. I'm going to continue to drive. I am going to continue to go to concerts. I'm going to continue to travel. I'm going to whatever it is. And, you know, for women, it's I'm going to continue to date, even if I have been hurt. Um, So, you know, when you realize that and you decide, I'm not going to let that one incident or a couple incidents, um, the one bad actor, you know, the whatever it is, influence who I am and take away all of my autonomy and independence. I'm going to still experience my life, this world, the way I want to, despite knowing that I could get hurt. Mm -hmm. That's security. You have just secured yourself. No one can change who you are inside. And I think um, with the nation, at the national level, it's the same idea. Our national security doesn't depend on a lack of being attacked. It depends on our believing in ourselves as a country and our ideals and our, our democratic republic and our constitution, despite the certainty that we will be attacked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in my mind, the Safety and security are two different things. And one, we all have the power to ensure, and that's the security side. The other, the safety, absolutely, you should rely on the government and a number of other public and private sector types of uh, efforts to make it as safe as possible. But there's no 100% guarantee. Yeah. So it's really security. Go ahead. I was just going to say, with national security, there is 100% absolute guarantee that we can be secure as a nation as long as we trust ourselves and believe in our country. I mean, that's it really comes down to that. It's profound, right? Because you're taking something that we think of as almost like a task to be accomplished and making it far more um, about our value system and the way we, we look at yeah. at the world and ourselves internally, right? Rather than playing from a place of fear, but playing from a place of like, you know, I, I still want to live life. So I'm not, I, I recognize things are going to happen and there's going to be risk, but I'm still going to live my life instead of being, you know, operating from a place of, of pure fear. And you talk a lot about, right. you know, and I know you've talked um, about girls' security. I, you're, you're part of a program, mm-hmm. a nonprofit called Girls' Security, a, a board member, um, which I found to be really interesting because I've never heard of this. I'm teaching um, a program to familiarize elementary to high school girls in national and international security issues 
and 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 starting from that spot and i love the twist on personal security and women and girls because we look at things differently and i would love for you to kind of dig into that because i know mm-hmm. we walk through our days and it's become more apparent i think with the me too movement that women feel a lack of security on a regular basis i can't get out of mm-hmm. my car and get into my house without being afraid that i am going to be murdered or raped and i, I know that sounds strong but that's a true statement we, we hold our car keys between our fingers um i mm-hmm. anytime someone approaches me in a parking lot i assume that they're there to hurt me um and that's that's the way we live so it's 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 interesting to kind of talk about safety and security but also dig into this whole you know what are you doing to teach these girls from a young mm-hmm. age about personal security and and taking that to the broader scale yeah so first I should tell you why um, um, the woman who founded Girl Security, Lauren Bean Buita, she's fabulous. <laughs> and she found me and that, and I'm very grateful to have been brought in um, in the early stages of this. We're still, still building. The, um, the why though, when we connected was because I absolutely believe that women have a different contribution to make to the, the, the actual definition, the meaning of national level or international security. And I think the Me Too movement is only making that an even sharper mm-hmm. uh, distinction. Uh, you know, all around the world, you know, the Me Too movement has gone global. So all around the world, you're seeing women realize, hey, you're not securing the things that are important to me. Um you know, all these billions and trillions and trillions of dollars spent on massive weaponry around the world and half this population of of the globe is not safe. So, yeah, I, I said before, safety is different from security. But in order for your nation to be secure, you have to be taken care of half of your population. I mean, the half of the population is dismissed and then there's a serious problem there. So, um so the real why is because I, I firmly believe, as with other STEM types of programs and trying to encourage girls at an earlier age to be interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, I would like to add S to the end of that, security, mm, because like we, cannot, we can't expect them at the age of 18 or 21 to suddenly develop an interest in something when they have felt excluded from it from the earlier years, from earlier ages. And when you think about national security, I mean, even you, you said it's something that people fear. Well, you think warfare, you think, you know, horrendous stuff. And that's always been the exclusive purview of men, or it has been for millennia. It's only recently that women have become involved, even in the militaries. So, so the why is because we need this different take, this different look at security, because the again, with the Me Too movement, we are seeing that resiliency is the only guarantor for security, because women are never going to be safe. Until we are, until we have only one gender, and we're all genetically the same, it's just not going to happen. So what do we do to be secure, knowing without a doubt that we are not ever going to be safe? So that's why I want more women involved. In terms of how we do it, we have a, we really have three goals. It's uh, empower, secure, and advance are our three goals. With the empower part, we 
we try to empower young girls with the knowledge about national security, about international security and the history and the, and the typical challenge in, in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we drive all of that, the curriculum, the exercises, the educational programs, the after-school programs, what the, even the Girl Scout patch programs, whatever it is, from women experts in the field. So it's with a particular perspective from the women, because I think women can speak to girls a little bit more easily, having having been girls at one point themselves too. So there's the empower. We want to empower them with that expertise, really share it. The securing part is we want to secure their confidence and their skills and their ability to contribute by doing simulations and wargaming. Wargaming is not something that a lot of girls are exposed to. Um, I went to the Marine Corps War College for my master's program, and you know we did a, we did wargaming there. And it is it's really important to be able to go through those kinds of real life simulations, understand the breakdown of the roles and the tasks, how you're going to collaborate and make decisions in that kind of fast paced crisis environment, so that you can develop the skills and maybe more importantly the confidence that you have them, right. so that when you go into these fields you feel you have more confidence because you know you have more competence. So that's the securing part. The advancing part is we're building a mentorship network. So what we're really trying to do is bridge the small gap between high school level girls and entry level women who have just started in the national security fields so that they can really help each other because you know in this buddy system this person has just been where you were just a few years ago, and so they remember and they can, again, speak from that shared experience because their age differential is not so great. And and I think that's really important. I teach also at Georgetown University. Um, I teach ethics and intelligence and national security. So I have graduate students and you know young women who are just dying to help. Mm-hmm. get more girls involved. So it's it's a great program. I so love that's it. it, those three pieces. I love it because, well, and I, for, so my background's in finance, right? So like I'm aware of the gender lens movement and I actually spoke at um, Girl, Scouts, Girl Scouts STEAM conference recently and I was talking to them about how our brains are different, right? So the corpus callosum in a woman is larger than in a man and we have the ability to kind of go back and forth between our left and right brains. And so I was sharing with them mm-hmm. how having the ability to be both left and right brain in decision making in crisis modes is actually helpful to the bottom line of a company. Oh yeah. So if you look at the economic data on a go forward basis, like we need women making decisions, it's basically the same thing. We have you know, a society that's, you know, kind of a patriarchal belief system um, where women haven't always been invited into these conversations. So you kind of put the, you put it all together for me because I understand it from the gender lens perspective, but I've never thought about it from the fact that 50% of your population, 50% of the world does not have the same security, but the, the people who are making the decisions as to what security looks like cannot relate to that, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember when we yeah. were in Sun Valley um, talking to, there was a, a Nobel Prize laureate who was there, and she was, you know, sharing with us. Um, Jody was sharing with us that um, in many countries, rape is used as a crime of war, and it's used for power and control, and that it's used as a weapon. And I was so, I guess I'm aware of it. But there's a lot of things that you want to kind of close your eyes to, in a lot of ways, and you don't really mm-hmm. want to think about it until it shows up on your newsfeed, like you know some things that have been coming out of India the last few days about um, the issues that they have it being a very unsafe, probably the most unsafe country, from what 
the news said, um, for women because of the ways they look at, at, at women and, and using rape as a, a, a crime of power. Um, so you've, you put these together to, for me, and I think that that makes complete 100% sense to, um, to approach it from that way. And women have to be in the room. They have to be decision makers. And I love the idea of bringing girls up um, to believe these things, not to be conditioned by our internal mm-hmm. belief systems that are currently in place. So, like, I'm all, like, singing your praises right now. I, I, I agree. Let's add the extra S. <laughs> <laughs> we'll add it at the end. Uh-huh. I love it. Thank you. What do you think? So I, I know that one of the things I, you know, share with listeners as we work through my conversations, um, I want I want people to share their goal, the things that they would want to leave behind or um, the wisdom or inspiration that if anyone was listening to you right now and they said, what is your goal? Mm-hmm. What could you leave behind? What would you say? What is my goal? Yeah. What gold. I hope to leave behind? Your gold nuggets of wisdom or inspiration. Oh, my gold. Okay. Um, my gold nuggets of inspiration. Um, I think um, there's really at least two things. Um, one on the big, broad level, you know, it's getting back to what we were just talking about, the, the gender difference. Um, you know, this, this world... This is this is not a blame statement, but this world has been dominated by the male perspective on everything since creation. <laughs> Only in the past hundred years has that been challenged, and that's not a lot of time. But when you look back at the entirety of our history, it's been documented by men. Mm-hmm. Just because women weren't there, weren't documenting it, doesn't mean that we did not have a different history. But we don't know what it was because it hasn't been recorded. So I think it's important to challenge every assumption, and not just the ones that are obvious, but the ones that are so embedded you don't even think to, to challenge them anymore. Yep. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Because... When I, you know, in the national security field, it's very clear to me, having experienced it these past 30 years, it is still very dominated by men. Um, That doesn't mean that they aren't considering women's issues, but it's not intuitive to them because they have never been women, or at least most of them have it. Mm. Um, I will say transgenders in in the national security arena have been incredibly powerful because they really can cut straight to the, oh, no, that's not how I experience it, and that's not how, you know, a woman experiences it, and that's not how a man experiences it, because they've been in both worlds. Um, But what what I'm getting at is um, it's as simple as, um, you know, when I tell, you you know, what you were talking about, when I tell my male colleagues, look, you don't go from from the office to your car worried about, you know, where you're parking under the light or, you know, having your keys at the ready or any of that, do you? And they're like, no. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't even occur to them. Right. Um, Or, you know, when you can run at night or when you can do any of those things. Those things just don't, they just don't, they're not thinking about them. So all leadership decisions, all of the, all of the um, boardrooms, the executive decision-making everywhere in this country and abroad, have all been almost exclusively the purview of men for for a very long time. So all the behaviors that even women 
ascribed to sound and good leadership Mm -hmm. are really still male intuitive behaviors. Decision-making is one of them. You know, men, they problem-solve immediately, and they fix the problem, and they go straight to the solution, and boom, 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 boom. Um, And that's considered competent, self-assured, executive decision-making, executive presence, all those stuff. But what if all you're ever doing is putting a Band-Aid on a bigger problem? You know, and if you're having to solve that problem over and over and over again, then maybe all that quick decision-making is really not profitable or useful. And women have a tendency instead to to look at problems and, like you said, the left and right brain, make them a bit bigger, try to relate to them and understand the, the bigger picture and the root causes. And that's not being sympathetic to your enemy it's trying to come up with a an enduring solution to a much bigger problem set because you're seeing the whole thing. We don't value that kind of decision-making because men see that as a waste of time, generally speaking, or they have seen that as a lack of confidence, when in fact it's a different form of competence. Mm-hmm. And until we start appreciating and valuing the way women identify problems, communicate and solve problems as much as we appreciate and value the way men do, we're never going to achieve equality. Because at the end of the day, all of this world's problems deserve both types of thinking, Mm -hmm. not just one or the other. So I you know, when I say like challenge every assumption, I, I actually had some uh, some conversations about women in executive leadership with the National Football League at one point. And um, I had a group of NFL folks in the room and we were talking about how women identify problems, solve problems differently. And they were nodding their heads, just mostly men in the room, not exclusively, but mostly men. And, and they had some questions and stuff. And at one point, one of them asked me a question about, you know, are there areas where women are more comfortable making decisions, whereas, you know, other areas you see men are better at, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, you know, I I think we don't know yet. I said, you know, think about this assumption that women can't be good football managers because they haven't played football. At least they haven't played full-out tackle football like we see in the NFL, right? All right, if that's the case, then explain to me why for hundreds of years women had to defer to the expertise of men who were birthing their babies, Mm. even though men had never been pregnant and never birthed a baby. So why were all the doctors, all the OB, you know, GYN men, right? We didn't have, we didn't, we weren't allowed to question that expertise. So I'm, I, you know, we really have to question assumptions and understand how embedded they are when it comes to executive decision making. So that's one thing I would just love to try to leave behind is always question what's the assumption underneath this cultural habit or belief or business practice, because it's it's probably worth exploring it. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. I um Gina for president. <laughs> if you ever run, <laughs> I'm gonna vote for you. I think it's uh, uh. we have to. I'm 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 struggling with this right now on the corporate framework because I'm reading all of these articles about these executives who are no longer mentoring women because they're worried of a false um, accusation, right? 
And that mm-hmm. was exactly what Me Too wasn't supposed to be, right? And right. It, it's hurting because I'm watching this happen. I'm watching men say, I don't feel comfortable bringing a woman to a dinner meeting. I don't feel comfortable riding alone with her in a car. I'm not going to bring her in on this deal. And so the Me Too movement, you're moving straight over from um, sexual harassment to gender discrimination. And when you said, right. until we're one gender, it's so funny because I was like, how do we find the place where we don't walk into a room as a man or a woman, and we walk in as solvers of problems or the the people who are going to come together and find a solution, can we ever get to that place? Um, And I think that that's a question. We're going to have to figure out how to remake the way we as a country, as a globe, as a community, I think look at our embedded biases that are so mm-hmm. deeply wound into our DNA, we don't even know that they're there. We don't even know that we're doing yeah. it. So you, yeah, it's one of my frustrations. Well, I mean, you know, it really starts with, you know, childhood. I, I'm I'm sort of, a, you know, in looking at the way terrorist, terrorist movements end in the world, um, you know, to draw an analogy between how does the terrorist movement end and how does the Me Too movement end? Right. That's um, a, that's that's one for the. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There are there are always lessons to be learned from a and what we would call a far analogy, something that doesn't seem like it would be remotely relevant. But in this case, you know, a terrorist group is an outlier, but they at least pretend or say they're championing a much broader grievance. Mm. Um, sometimes they have completely stolen that grievance and the people that who really are aggrieved are victims of the terrorists as much as anyone else, but they are not empowered to do anything about it. Um, sometimes the terrorist group is in fact, you know, being sincere and trying to um, find a solution to the, or at least bring attention to the grievance. But again, they're using a tactic that is, that is horrendous. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the bottom line is there's some underlying grievance that is much larger than the terrorist membership itself. And you have on the other side usually a government that doesn't want to you know, sit down with that terrorist, doesn't want to negotiate with the terrorists, of course, and and, and um, wants to do everything it can to discredit them. And in doing so, does the proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, dismisses the grievances behind. And so there's a whole swath of people who's real problems are being ignored. Mm-hmm. The only way that this ends is when somebody decides to save face or that the grievance is enough, that they, you create some kind of middleman and you have a behind-the-scene negotiated settlement. It's always behind the scenes. Sometimes you, the public knows it's occurring, but they don't know the ins and outs of it. Sometimes it's happening in a third country and it's completely clandestine. But the point of it is people have to sit down at the table and say, look, here's what we want. And the other side says, here's what we want. And then what can we live with and what can we live with? You know, in my mind, if you were to sit down, I'm not sure I would not, I wouldn't limit it just to the Me Too movement, but to, you know, women on one side and men on the other, it would have to be, I I think we're going to have to get to a place where women may have to, and this is going to be extremely controversial, but if we're going to get legislation laws that truly protect us and i'm not tar- i'm and i'm not convinced that the era is enough 
you know, it was written a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a lot more data now to understand what's going on in the world. You know, the United States um, percentage of women who are victims of partner violence in the U.S. is higher than the global average. Mm-hmm. It's almost 40 percent. Mm-hmm. So it is, what is going on is not what we even thought back in um, when the ERA was first drafted. We have a lot more knowledge. I think we need better laws than even that. But we're not going to get there because we have a legislative body that is still dominated by men who, like these men you're talking about, fear whether they've done something in the past or they're just afraid of being perceived as having done something. They're going to end up on the chopping block. If we don't have some kind of amnesty and a discussion of it and getting to a place where by the age of five in in schools, girls and boys are being taught how to respect each other. And we're not dismissing boys will be boys. Right. And I don't have a vice principal calling me and telling me that my 10-year-old daughter was told that she should be a stripper by a boy in school. And then the vice principal, a woman, says to me, well, you know, she's very pretty. She's going to get that kind of attention. What? (laughs) No. How would he even know? Right. Mm. Right. And you wonder why. So this is not all the fault of men. (laughs) Right. You know, we, you know, this, this, but like I said, I think if we want to end to this war, <laughs> we're going to have to realize that we, neither side can have it all. Yeah. And we have to do it for the sake of the future generation. Well, I love what you're, I love what you're saying. I love what you're, what you're about. And I love that you bring it from a place you, I, and I love the women that I have gotten to know over the course of the last several years who are trying to be change makers and have opinions and voices um, about the ways we can do things are coming at it also from a data-driven and um, personal experience perspective, right? It's not just arms in the air screaming, we need this to change. It's, you know, hey, here's actual data that shows why it needs to change, right? These are the reasons. And I I think as I see women more empowered Mm -hmm. by data, they have a tendency to kind of move the conversations forward for themselves. Um, I, this has been amazing. I just, I love talking to you and I love the way you're, you're, uh-huh. you changed my mind about talking. Like I was at first and I'm like, CIA analyst. Like I, I, I don't know why there's just that kind of like <laughs> the, the, the fear, you know, there's the fear, there's terror, there's guns, there's what have you. And when I talk to you, you're a mom, right? You're, you're a mom of yeah. five and you're someone who's looking at it from the perspective um, of being a mother and a woman. And um, I love it. If, is there anything else that you would want to share um, with any of, of my listeners? Um, any thoughts, any nuggets, anything last that, that kind of resonates with you? Yeah, well, I mean, I I could obviously I could go on forever about the topic of national security, security women's issues in the field, but in a, in a more in a broader sense, just as an American, um, going back to something I said before about in some ways rethinking our security in this post 9/11 world in a way that we did during the Cold War, and during the Cold War. If you go back, I mean, nobody's going to do this, I'm sure, and read National Security Council paper number 68. It was the (laughs) articulation of our containment strategy against the Soviet Union. And what I find so powerful in that document is what it characterizes. It characterizes the Soviet Union as totalitarian, 
oppression. You know, this is what communism was dictating how you should think and believe in a very holistic way. So from the authors of, of that strategy, their belief was America's greatest strength was our freedom. Mm-hmm. But the demonstration of freedom was in our tolerance of diversity and adversity. Mm. We tolerated people who did not believe and think the way we did, even within our own society. Yep. We we embraced those differences, and the more we stood up to them, not we weren't weaker, we were stronger for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the line that gets to me the most is, you know, compulsion is the negation of freedom. It's just that simple. When you compel people to stand for the for the national anthem, mm-hmm. when you compel them to do whatever else, when you tell them they have to do it this way and they have to think that way, you are negating freedom. Mm. So, you know, I wish that we could get back to this place where we understand we're never going to agree and polarization is not a bad thing. Each of the political parties is more internally consistent and representative of the people that are in them. That's okay. But we have to embrace each other, you know, like a family. When you have somebody you can't stand in your own family, you still you got to embrace them and love them. And, you know, when someone else externally is, is threatening them, you stand by your family. So, I don't know. I mean, for me, everything that you look at in the world on a macro picture can be explained by a family and how a family works, no matter what the structure of the family. Mm-hmm. It's all the same dynamic. So, I just think, um, as I said before, every single person has the ability to keep us secure and and to keep us free. It's just a matter of seeing it and believing it. Well, the two things I'm taking away from this call and that words that I've heard you say multiple times that I think get down to the heart of the matter is resilience and embracing a life worth living as opposed to being in mm-hmm. a place of fear. And those are the kind of the hallmarks, I think, that I've taken away from this. And I want to thank you for giving me the time to talk to me about this because, you know, it's important to me. And I love that we can strike the parallels no matter what industry or field we are from um, as women and mothers who are kind of in the fight. So I just want to thank you so much for what you do, not only yeah. to just th- having a conversation with me, but for, for our globe, for our country, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I love what I do, so I'm very happy doing it. Thank you so much for listening today. I love Gina's advocacy for women, her argument that we cannot allow fear to change the way we behave, and the importance of women's voices in security based on our personal experiences and perspectives. Living intentionally is where it's at, and if you are anything like me, you get out of bed and reach for your phone. I'd love to say that I do yoga first thing, but let's be honest, I open my eyes to news and I'm ready to counter that with my own weekly intention journey. I'm inviting you, totally free, from my heart to your inbox. Sign up for my love notes at JeanetteSchneider.com, and before you even wake up on Monday mornings, there will be a huge dose of motivation waiting for you. 
Yes, I will wake you up on Monday morning with intention-setting prompts and give you some tips as to what's setting my soul on fire. On Fridays, I'm going to remind you to let go, recharge, and love yourself up with some self-care prompts to get present in your downtime. As always, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and don't forget to share with your girlfriends. I'm always interested in content that uplifts, so if you have anything you'd like to hear about, please share it in the comments. You can also find me on Instagram at ms.janetteschneider or Twitter at msjwrites. If you'd like to get deep in the work with me, pick up my book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future, now available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Until next time, in the words of my grandma, love each other every day.